ministering in the Word of God today in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there and uh, you can mark Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 3. How many love the scriptures, man? Amen. Praise God. We'll start at Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. And um, verse 1, and, the, and if Olivia can put the King James Version translation up there, that'd be great. For those of you who have a different one, you can follow along on the screen. And the Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. And now through faith, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. Now, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have left us a good report. Lord, you've left us an instruction manual for daily living, God. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the power of preservation when it comes to your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the promise of your word when you said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Lord, they are eternal. It's what framed the world. It's what framed us. It's what's given us life, and it is what's created a, is what's made us born again. And Lord, we believe in your word today, and we want to give you praise. And we want to thank you, Lord, for the grace For the women and the men that have gone before us, Lord, Lord, that have given their lives, Lord, that we may have the freedom and we may have access to the scriptures that are in our laps today, God. Lord, when we open this Bible up, God, we don't take it lightly. We don't take it for granted, Lord. Lord, we see the cost. And Lord, now open our hearts this morning, God, as we hear your word. And Holy Spirit, Give us a word that is in season today. Lord, let us be changed by the hearing of this word. Lord, just as it was in the days of old when they read the scriptures, God, Lord, hearts were changed. Broken hearts were mended. Lord, the spirit of fear was cast down. Lord, and a love and a sound mind is established, God. Thank you for the Bible, God. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that shows us all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we see here in Hebrews 11 a very, I mean, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard a hundred sermons on these scriptures. And every time I read this chapter, there's a couple of things that stick out to me. One word that really always hits me is the word now. Now faith is. 
Now is an action word. Now faith. God, faith lives in the now. We respond to what we've heard God say now. And that's how we receive a good report. I want to talk about the now faith for a moment. But before I do that, in verse 3, I want you to see where it says, Now through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, and that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. That's a very important verse, especially for our young people today. I've got daughters that are in college. I've got kids that are in high school, elementary school, kindergarten. You have grandparent kids, children that are in school, and they are not telling us that what we see was made by things that we cannot see. They tried to say that things came from things that we can see, and that is irrelevant. That is not a message that is preached it's never been preached that way through the, through the dawns of time. Man has always known that God created the things that we see. The invisible God made the visible. Amen? And we must believe that because I did not see Jesus visibly die for my sins. I did not see him visibly walk out of the tomb. But I believe that Jesus, who I did not see, he purchased my redemption. He purchased your redemption, amen? And Jesus told the disciples that did see him, he said, blessed are those that believe when they don't see. He actually put a greater blessing on us in the future than he did for his disciples that were standing right there. He actually said, we have the greater blessing or we have the higher honor because we believe in one whom we have not seen, amen? And it excites God when men and women take God at his word and they act and respond accordingly. Praise the Lord. So Genesis, if you're there, Genesis chapter 1, it says, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God what? He said. God spoke, and there was light. Now, this is not the sun and the moon that we read about later on. The Bible says that God set the sun and the moon and the stars of the sky for times and for seasons, amen? Here... God said, let there be light, and he separated the light from the darkness. And the evening and the morning was the first day. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What the Lord was declaring here is, is that the Bible says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, no shadow of turning. When, when the Lord walks into the room, there's no shadow. His light does not cast a shadow. What God was saying here was when he said, let there be light, let there be a revelation of myself into the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, he spoke these things, and it's always been God's heart to reveal himself to men and to women. 
and to children. But man in his religious traditions always tries to place God afar off. They always try to make God seem like he is somebody that is unreachable and because of that, they set up a religious system that creates different um, traditions and ceremony that a person has to go through to reach a God that is far away. Now the Bible tells us very clearly, don't say in your heart that we must go way over here to find God. Don't say we must go way up to heaven to find God. Don't say that we must go down to the depths of the earth to find God. The Bible says that God said that he is as near as our lips. The scriptures declare that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, there's a link between the mouth and the heart, amen? The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The belief starts in the heart. And the lips confirm what is already in the heart, amen? So, you know, you have heard maybe the expression, a shallow confession is lip deep. What is a shallow confession? It's a confession that just comes from the mouth, but there's nothing in the heart. We see that a lot today. We see that in religion. And listen, when I say religion, we're talking about churches all over the world. We have Episcopalian, we have Lutheran, we have Methodist, we have Pentecost, we have Catholic, we have United Reform, we have Southern Baptist, First Baptist, Free Baptist, Anglican, Missionary Baptist, we have Calvary Chapel, we have Vineyard, we have Foursquare, we have Holiness, Church of the Nazarene. We have all these different churches and denominations. Throughout the centuries, men have decided to, you know, as they begin to have differences about what the scripture teaches, they start their own movement. And I'm telling you, in every one of those places that I just listed, you have the born again and you have those that are just confessing with their mouth but not believing in their heart. And you know, it's not our job to go around and try to dig out the ones who we think are not the believers. Jesus gave us a parable. You remember that parable where he said, they said, uh, Lord, there's a thief. Somebody has come and sown tares or or weeds amongst the wheat. So we had weeds and wheat growing up together. Weeds and wheat. And they said, Lord, look who's done this. And the Lord said, the enemy's done this. Well, let us go and pull the weeds out from the wheat. And Jesus said, no, don't do that. Because while you're pulling out the weeds, you're gonna pull out the wheat before it's time. We are not the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest, amen? And the Bible says that we don't reap the harvest. The Bible declares 
that the angels will come and they will put their their sickles into the earth and they will reap what for the Lord. We're not to go around and try to pull out people who we think belong and don't belong. But the Lord did say, you will know them by their fruit, amen? You will know them by their fruit. And so, we must believe in the heart. And I find no other way to condition the heart ripe for belief than the word of God which produces faith. We must have the word of God because we must have faith. If we don't have faith, we are not going to be able to accomplish what God has left us here on the earth for. Most of the problems that we have in church, in our family, arguing and strife and whatever it be, it's because there's a lack of faith. I have watched my family grow and I love my family. But I'm telling you, I, as, a, as a man with seven children, I can pinpoint the root of all my family problems. And it's a lack of faith. Most of the strife comes when somebody says something and they don't believe what they said. There's a doubt that's planted there. There's an unbelief and maybe they don't think they have all the facts together or maybe they think that they're saying something because they have an ulterior motive. Whatever it is, it's there's a lack of faith. And where I find where there's a lack of faith in my life, in my family's life, in your life, in our church's life, where there's a lack of faith, there's a lack of the word. Because the Bible says the word of God is what produces faith. That's solid. The only thing, works will not produce faith. I was talking to a brother today. We must put worship before anything. And one of the problems we have in church is that people put their works and their worship, they get them confused. There's a big difference between works and worship. You know, a lot of times we'll come and we'll think that we're worshiping God because we may work in the soup kitchen. Or we may come and fix the tiles on the roof. Or we come in here and we'll vacuum or clean the toilet. These are works for God, and man, I'm thankful for them. And it pleases God. He likes that. All right? But worship and works are two different things. When we come into this sanctuary, and worship is not just singing. Worship is sitting and hearing the word of God. Worship is being under God's word. You know, I'm concerned because we have great times in worship conferences and we have great moments where we're in the presence of God. But worship does not create faith. And the Bible says, this is the victory, even our what? Faith. 
What is the victory? Our faith. What gives the Christian believer a victorious walk in the Lord? Faith gives the believer the victory. And worship belongs to him. But I am telling you today, I'm the worship leader here at Christian Life Center. I like worship better than the next guy. Maybe not better, but I like it. But I'm telling you as your worship leader, worship will not create faith. Worship is a response to the faith that God has given us. Amen. The word creates faith. And if you or you have relatives or you have children and they're having great times going to music festivals and doing all these things, that's all great, but you better make sure there's a steady diet of the word because it's the word that creates faith. Now, and faith is the victory. So, here's what happens. In Genesis chapter 3, I might have said a couple of these things before, but I think they bear repeating because every time I read this chapter, it's just so, it's like everything that we need. I love the book of Genesis because it's the book of beginnings. In, the, in, in, in Bible school, they teach a thing called the law of first reference. And the law of first reference is when the Bible talks about a subject, if you go back to where that subject is first mentioned, it gives tremendous insight and sets a tone or a pattern for that subject throughout the entire scriptures. How many people have a Thompson chain reference Bible? You'll know what I'm talking about. You know, a subject chain where you take a subject of the Bible, you find out where it first is mentioned, and you run that subject all the way through the scriptures. That's how you study the Bible. You know, the Bible is an interpreter of itself. You know, one of the problems that we have, that the cults have, like Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and stuff, they like to take scriptures out of context. How many have ever heard the doctrine of soul sleep? Well, soul sleep is something that the Jehovah Witnesses believe in, and they take their scriptures from the book of Job when Job was crying out in anguish for his condition. Well, Job wasn't teaching doctrine there. It was a man's point of view as he was going through his misery. Also, when he talks about things about hell where he's saying you know the even the wicked are at rest when they die because he wanted to die so he's like man if 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 I would just die I would be better off because even the wicked are at peace when they die and that's where the doctrine of soul sleep comes from and that is not doctrine you cannot get your doctrine about the grave and hell from the man job or a man's perspective we must get our doctrine about the afterlife from the lord jesus christ the one who came down from heaven and is in heaven You know, the Bible says that about Jesus. He said, the son of man came down from heaven 
and is in heaven. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. That's a great scripture saying how Jesus is God. Because how can Jesus be on earth but in heaven at the same time? Because he's God, that's how. And men for centuries have tried to debate about the divinity or the deity of Jesus. I'm telling you, he's the son of God. It's not enough to believe that he was a good man come to teach, but he was God come to teach, as my dad loves to say. Jesus was God come to teach. And we must get our doctrines of the afterlife from the things that he spoke because he's the one that knows what he's talking about, not Job. So in the serpent here, it says in chapter three, verse one, he was more subtle than the beast of the field. And this is what happens in false religion. He begins to connive and trick. That's what the word subtle there is. And look what he says to the woman. He says, and he said to the woman, yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, if you flip right back there, you'll see what God said. In verse 16 of chapter 2. It says in verse 16 of chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. The serpent said, Hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And as my wife cleverly pointed out to me, the serpent was actually right in what he was saying. But that's not what God said. In, if, you're, if you're trying to summarize the meaning of what God said, yes, they can't eat of every tree of the garden. But that's not what God said. God said, you shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of that tree you shall not eat. God said, you can eat every tree in the garden, but that one. Satan said, hath God said, you cannot eat of every tree of the garden. You see the difference there? You see the negative slant that he was trying to put on God? Trying to make God look like he's trying to withhold? That he's not a loving, benevolent God? That he doesn't care for his creation? That he doesn't look after them? That he doesn't provide for them? He always, he's trying, the accuser of the brethren always tries to make it look like God is holding out on his people. Hath God said, you cannot do this. God said, you cannot do that. God said, you're not allowed to do this. You can't eat that 
You can't drink that. You can't go here. You can't smoke, chew, and hang out with girls that do. You see how he's always right there from the get-go. In the very beginning, he's always trying to paint a bad picture of God. That's what he does out there in the world. That's what he did to me when I was lost and deceived. I thought God hated me. I thought God didn't like anything I did. But the loving father told his creation in the very beginning, hey, you can eat of every tree, everything here you can have except one. That's it. And so, what does Eve say here? She said, the woman said, and she's called the woman here because he's not named her yet as Adam. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, look what she says, God has told us you shall not eat of it Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God didn't tell her that she's not allowed to touch it. God never said that. So the first thing, the serpent, the enemy, comes and he tries to say what God said, but he puts it, he rearranges the words into a way that makes it look like God does not want them to have everything. Now what the woman should have done here is she should have took her Bible and turned straight back to chapter two and just read verse 16. That would have been the perfect answer. Because who did that? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did Jesus say when the tempter came? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word that proceeded out of the mouth of God was verse 16. You shall eat of every tree in the garden, but of that tree you shall not eat of it. Jesus taught the believer, the disciple, that the word is our weapon. But it's our weapon as exactly how he said it. Okay? Now, and I find the example there, Jesus did not paraphrase what God said. He didn't say to the enemy in the wilderness, well, I believe it's my opinion that God meant this. Or I believe through the education that I've received that I am qualified to make an educated guess that this is what I believe God meant when he said that. 
I believe because I've studied for 20 years that when God said this, he also meant to say that. It's called higher criticism. And I don't know why they call it higher criticism. And it's killing our young people when they got the fire of God in their hearts and they go off to Bible college and they teach this rubbish in seminary. Many people with the fire of God trying to pursue the Lord and his ministry for their lives have been dashed to pieces with this rubbish. Now the woman here was an heir because she said, God said we can't eat it or we can't touch it. So the serpent twists the word and the woman added to the word. So she was already on shaky ground. She didn't take the word exactly how God said it. She took the word and then she added to the word and then that's what set her up for the temptation that we see that follows the chapter. I believe with all my heart if she would have just taken the word of God and just spoke the word just as God had said it. Resist the devil and he shall flee from you. Resist him with what? Oh, I don't want to do that. 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 No, you resist the devil. It is written, thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word. All the temptation that we receive as human beings, they come from our flesh, our body. This body is decaying. Just take a look at your neighbor. (laughs) This is not the same body I had when I was 24. I wish it was. But I'm just having a reality check. It's interesting They were not going to die until this happened. But what did he say to Adam when he, when he pronounced this after Adam ate? The Bible says the woman gave to the man and he did eat, didn't he? Um, It says in verse six of chapter three, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eye, and that the tree, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Every temptation, young people, new Christians, old Christians, those are the three areas that we will fight until Jesus comes and gives us our resurrected body. The lust of the flesh, man. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life, James talks about. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Those are the things that begin, she began to set her focus on because she did not use the word in temptation. And so then 
it says she gave it to her husband in verse six with her and he did eat. It says she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And she didn't die as soon as she ate. But when she gave unto her husband and he took it, that's when that says their eyes were opened. Now, The Lord goes on here and after he pronounces his judgment the Bible preaches or the Lord preaches the gospel in verse 14 of chapter 3. It's the first mention of the Messiah um, in verse 15 actually. And I'll never forget when I first got saved, my dad took my Bible, took my King James Bible, and verse 15 is the first thing he did when I got my new study Bible, is he opened it up to chapter 3, verse 15, and he put brackets around the two words there, seed. In verse 15, it says, I will put enmity, or I will put a warfare, or I will put a, I will draw the lines I will draw the lines. I will draw the battle lines between thee, talking to Satan, and the woman, talking to Eve, and between thy seed, whose seed? The serpent's seed. And my dad put a little bracket there and he put Satan, thy seed, Satan's seed, and her seed. And he put the word Jesus there, or Messiah. Because this is the first promise that the Lord promised a redeemer to come in and save us. And so it says, he shall bruise thy head. In other words, Jesus will crush his head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, that you know he's going to sustain an injury, talking about the crucifixion. And so, in verse 15, the Messiah is preached. And so, hearing the word, in verse 20, who did God say the seed was going to come through, Adam or Eve? He said, he said unto the woman, okay? Now, women, we know, do not have sperm. The seed is in the man, right? Do they still teach that in, in, in biology? Yeah. Women don't have sperm. They don't have seed, okay? The man does, so God, in the very beginning, was prophesying the virgin birth right here. Everybody likes to turn to Isaiah for the virgin birth. But right here, the Lord is preaching the virgin birth. He's saying that the line or the Messiah will come out of the woman. And so, look what then Adam does then in verse 20. So, Adam called his wife's name Eve. Up until that point, she was just woman. 
But at this moment, after he heard the promise that the gospel was being preached, he called his wife's name Eve, which means life giver. Living or life giver. So Adam heard the word of God and then he called his wife by what he had heard. So Adam demonstrated faith in what God said by naming his wife the life giver. Jesus said, I had come into this world that you might have what? Life and have it more abundantly. So the first thing area of faith that we see is that Adam called. He had now faith. He had an action to what he believed. Amen? Now, if we move on through the story, um, it's important to pick this up that in after he calls her that, in verse 21... Now, what did they try to clothe themselves with? Fig leaves. Where do figs come from? They come from a tree, and a tree comes from the ground, right? All right. Put a little tag on that. Remember that. In verse 21, though, it says, Unto Adam and to his wife, the Lord God made what? Coats of skins. And he clothed them. Who clothed them? God clothed them. God clothed them with coats of skins. In other words, animal skins. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never been in the woods where a bear walked by and just unzipped his coat and put it on me. An animal will not just freely give up his coat, amen, is what I'm trying to say. In other words, this animal, whatever animal that is, it doesn't say here, But that animal had to die to give up those coats, amen? So God is showing here, right from the beginning, the substitutionary sacrifice for our disobedience. The shedding of blood is what God requires for disobedience. Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 17. Say amen when you're there. Turn to your neighbor and say the blood. The blood, man. It's the blood. Verse 11, chapter 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. What makes an atonement for the soul? Did the coats of skin, did that make an atonement? It was the blood that was shed on the altar that made an atonement for them, and the coat was a result of the blood. The Bible says that our righteousness is as a garment. But our righteousness is a result of his shed blood. Amen? It's not our righteousness 
that created forgiveness of sin. And that's where religion gets it wrong. Religion tries to create an area of righteousness so that man can be forgiven. That man has to do certain things before he can receive forgiveness of sin. Religion is like that. You know, we, it's not... Coming up here and taking communion is not what makes you forgiven, as some churches teach. It's an error to believe that taking a wafer and a cup of juice or wine, that in doing that, that is what then at that moment makes you forgiven. That is just a remembrance of what is already done. It is just a, 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 a memorial meal. It's not actually taking, you know, well, I mean, some of you have been in the Catholic church before, how they teach that that actually becomes the body of Jesus. Transubstantiation or whatever it's called. It's not correct. I was speaking to one lady at the garden center the other day, and she was so excited, but she told me when they get done with the bread that is turned into the body of Jesus, they put the leftovers in a metal box in the church called the tabernacle, and the Lord's body is in that box. That she, she literally believed that the physical body of Jesus was locked up in that box. And I'm thinking to myself, Man, God got out of a box once. He ain't getting back in another one. He ain't going back in. You know? And it's, it's, when you know what the Bible says and then you speak to people that are in religion, it's mind-blowing how people can actually get to that place. But why is somebody drawn into something like that? Because sincerely, they want to be right with God. They have a witness that God is real, and they want to be right with God. But anyway, we see here that he had a, the blood had to be shed. And so then we move on to chapter 4 in Genesis You can go back there. And it says in verse 3, in the process of time it came to pass that Cain, he brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Where did his offering come from? Fruit of the ground. Where did the aprons that Adam and Eve come from? The fruit of the ground. In verse 4, Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. Now it says here that in verse 2 that Abel was a keeper of sheep. And so it's my opinion that this is probably what was shed back in the earlier chapter to clothe them. And I find it very interesting that from the very beginning in Genesis God said a lamb shall be provided for a man. In Exodus, it says that a lamb 
shall be provided for a family. In Leviticus, it says a lamb or a sin offering will be provided for a nation. And in the Gospels, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So all through the Bible, God has been pointing the way for redemption from a man to a family to a nation and to the world. God, when he, when God is so amazing how he takes his time because he's God and he knows that what he said is going to come to pass and he's not in a hurry. But he just little by little, line upon line, precept on precept, begins to build what he has already promised. But you know who also operates that way? The serpent operates that way. Satan operates that way. Satan just doesn't come into our house all of a sudden in camouflage gear and just, just stormtroop our house and take over. Nope, he comes in little by little. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Oh, that's no big deal. That's no big deal. We'll, we'll have some of that. That's okay. We're not offending anybody there. We'll tolerate a little bit of this. We'll tolerate a little bit of that. We'll have some of this. We'll have some of that. We'll have some of this. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you're so far gone down the road from what you first believed when you first fell in love with Jesus. It's like, how did I get here? You just didn't get there that day. You got there. And it's interesting because that's parallel to the way the, the, the Holy Spirit has worked in the world through, through his testimony in the scriptures. You know, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin in chapter three. We had to go all the way through to Matthew. But he spoke it in chapter three and then he just kind of worked it. Actually, it says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. People's like, oh man, you know, if Adam hadn't sinned, we'd still be living in nirvana. Hold on a second. Do you think it surprised God when Eve was deceived? Or when Adam, because he tried to, he wanted to love his wife and do what she was doing? He knew this was going to happen. From the foundations of the world, God decided that he was going to send his son. Why? Because there's an accuser of the brethren that keeps going around and saying God does not love his creation. That God is angry at his creation. And so that's why it says the angels look down on us and they're amazed at how God deals with us. Because from the beginning... When Lucifer took all the angels, third, well, he tried to deceive all of them, but a third bought into his lie when he told them, look, I'm going to be in charge. It says, I will ascend into the most high. I will be like the most high. You know, Satan has always wanted to take over God's position. And how he tries to do that is he tries to deceive people that God is not worth following that he wants to keep things from us, like he told Eve, 
Had God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, you know, he's holding back from you. So, that's how he does it. And this is what we see in the earth today. In verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, In the process of time, Cain brought the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstling of his flock. Now, it doesn't even say in verse 3 that Cain brought the first thing that came up out of the ground. It just says he brought of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say first fruit, but in verse 4, it says first. Now, first to me always means our best. Amen? First is like, that's a sign that you're giving honor to the Lord. But more than that, it says here that the God had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he did not have respect or he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth or angry and his countenance fell. Now I find another law of first reference here in the Bible And this is the first time we see depression in the Bible. The Bible says that his countenance fell. But what came before his countenance fell? Anger came. He was mad at God or mad at Abel. And it says his countenance fell. Now, if we go, keep your finger there because we're going to go back there in a minute, but I want you to see Hebrews, if you still got your marker there in Hebrews, because God's not a respecter of persons. The Bible makes that very, very clear. God does not have favorites. There are no stepchildren in the kingdom of God. We're all sons and daughters, priests and kings. But in chapter 11, verse 4, It tells us what the difference between Cain and Abel was, and it's this. By faith, Abel offered up unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying of of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaks. So, what was the difference between Cain and Abel? Faith was the difference between Cain and Abel. Abel obeyed by faith what God had instructed the family to do. The family obviously obeyed the word that, you know, an atonement or a, a, a sacrifice for sin, there must be the shedding of blood. So Abel believed what God said, that there must be a shedding of blood, and that was he put his faith in what God had said, and then he carried out what God told him. Now, how do we know this? Well, look what verse 6 says. It says, now the Lord said unto Cain, why are you angry, or why are you wroth, and why is your countenance fallen? Why are you depressed, Cain? Why are you have a shadow on your face? Why are you, you know, got that angry look? Why you got that kind of, where's the spark in your eyes? 
If thou doest well, shall you not be accepted? But if you do not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. Now, it's amazing how the Lord goes from talking about sin and then all of a sudden he turns it into, a, he uses a pronoun there, he. And he, um, and he says that because of this. And he says, why are you upset? Why are you depressed? If you do well, you'll be accepted. That word accepted there is, you'll be lifted up. You'll be lifted. You'll be, you'll, you'll have a good, you'll have a good disposition. You'll feel lifted up if you do good. But if you don't do good, sin lies at the door. Now the Hebrews, they did not have a difference term for sin and sin offering it's the same thing they the rabbis teach that the sin and the sin offering are one so what he's saying here is Cain if you do not do well your sin desires to rule over you but he's also saying Cain, if you do not do well, a sin offering is at the door. And all you got to do is, by faith, do exactly what you were told to do and have faith in the shed blood for what you did wasn't right. When you did not do what was right, have faith in the blood and you shall be lifted up. You cannot go around... And think that in our own strength, I mean, there are days when you're going to fly on cloud nine, but then there are going to be days when you're wroth. And it's because you had not exercised faith or somebody upset you or you believed in what somebody said about you or you said something about somebody else and you're mad at them or they're mad at you or your words have cut and now you feel guilty about your words. You kind of wish you never would have said them in the first place. But you have too much pride to humble yourself and say you're sorry. Why is that? Because some people can't even forgive themselves. How can they forgive somebody else? Let me tell you something. It's not in your power to forgive yourselves or somebody else, but it is in our power to believe in the shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We must make Jesus the center of our forgiveness because we have no power to forgive. He proved that way in the beginning. When Adam sinned, he shed blood and provided for them coats of skin. When you sinned, Jesus said once and for all, he taketh away the sins. And so my appeal to us today is this. That if your countenance is fallen, 
that you turn to the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, more and more, the church is slipping out the doors. God's people are slipping out the doors, and they're not coming to the cross. They're not, they're not applying the blood by faith. They're going to the psychiatrist, and they're turning to the medical world, who will not point you to the blood. Your physician will not say the reason why you have depression is because you have not received the blood of Jesus for forgiveness. They're not going to tell you that. Listen, we need the physicians. Luke was a physician. I'm not preaching against physicians today, but I am preaching against physicians who tried to take a spiritual matter and turn it into a physical matter. There is plenty of science out there that proves that a person's emotional response is compounded by an action. So if somebody takes something to change their emotions, they're just changing the symptoms. It's like when you have a cold and you take cough medicine, it doesn't cure the actual disease or the virus, it just covers up the symptoms of a runny nose or a headache. That's what, when we have emotional problems and we do these, take these substances, that's what it usually does. Now, there are extreme cases where these things need to be taken to create some sort of order so that we can get back on track and start dealing with the foundations that need to be laid. Some things are so far over here that we kind of got to bring it back into the center line. And that's okay. But if we think that that's, doing that is the cure or we never take our family members or our loved ones or people that we know and we don't preach the truth and say, listen, your countenance has fallen because you have unforgiveness or you're angry or you're, you're upset, somebody's offended you. And the, cure, the key for that, man, is first of all, you have to apply the blood by faith to yourself and then you have to apply that blood to others by faith, not by feeling. Faith and forgiveness, they're an action of the will. You forgive by faith, whether you like it or not. Even if you feel it, you say, it's in his word. Jesus died for me, he forgave me, therefore I am gonna forgive others even if I can or I can't or I don't feel it or whatever, amen? And it's by faith. And so, in verse 10, closing with this, it says, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. What have you done? I've hear the blood of your brother. Now the Hebrew there is plural. I hear the bloods of your brother. Or I hear the drops of blood of your brother. And it's Jewish thought that the Lord is speaking of, I hear the blood of your brother and his son and their 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 son. I hear the entire line of your family that, is, that, that has just been wiped out by you shedding blood. 
Why do people want to shed our blood but not receive his blood that was already shed? Blood was already shed for the problem. God had already told Cain what to do. You got a problem with anger? You got a problem with unforgiveness? You feel like you're no good? Shed blood. Sacrifice a lamb like I told you to and receive atonement for your soul. But no, he wanted to shed his brother's blood. He wanted to take out an entire race of people because he was angry. And don't we have that today? Don't we have people that just want to cut an entire family off because they, won't, they want to shed that blood in a parallel sense, but they don't want to come to the shed blood. So we cut off generation after generation after generation after generation because we don't apply the blood that God said has been shed. We want to cut people off. And we see that over and over through the history. And that's one of the, that's, this, is the, this is one of the main problems. And it all comes from Cain and his depression. This is why. This is why we have all the problems in the world. Because Cain was a prideful man. He offered grain instead of a lamb. He wanted to do it his way. And you hear the way of Cain is somebody that wants to do it their way. We're not called to that, amen? And the good news is, Abel's blood might have been crying for vengeance, but Hebrews 11 says that the blood of Jesus Christ, Abel's blood speaks a better word. And what is that word? That blood is not vengeance, that blood is mercy, amen? Christ's blood cries mercy. So if you don't have the power or strength to apply mercy to somebody or forgiveness for somebody, there's only one thing you need to do. You need to look at Jesus' blood and let his blood speak instead of your blood. Amen. Praise God. Let's stand to our feet. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just really felt like there needed to be forgiveness in this room this morning. I didn't even know it until I got through in the, in the middle of this message. And so, Lord, I just ask God. And we just as a family, in a congregation, Lord, we put faith in your blood, not in our own. And Lord, we forgive ourselves. We forgive others. Lord, we release the grudges. I'm sorry, God. I repent of my wickedness to hold something over somebody's head that you don't even hold over their head. It's not right for me to put somebody in that kind of position, Lord. I'm not the one that went to the cross. 
Lord, you said, Lord, as you were dying for us, God, it is finished. It's paid in full. There's no debt here anymore. There's no debt hanging over us, God. There is no mortgage statement over our lives, God. Lord, there's just an estate will. There's a will there. And you willed, Lord, that we have eternal life, man. We're going to live forever, Lord. Lord, you promised to give us life abundantly. So, Lord, I pray for the spirit of forgiveness to flow through this room. I'm sorry for my words. I'm sorry for my anger. Lift my countenance, Lord. Remove depression from me. You're the lifter of our heads. You're the lifter. It's your hand on our chin, Lord, lifting our heads to you. No more shame. No more regret. No guilt. But Lord, your hand, it, it tilts our head towards you. It takes your hand there on our chin and just, you're the lifter of our head, Lord. The serpent crawls on the ground, Lord. Why do we look to the ground? We look to you. We lift our heads to you high to the sky, Lord, not to the ground. Because as a believer, as a Christian, Lord, as a child of God, Lord, we're not going to the ground. This body's going to go to the ground, but Lord, we're going to you. So lift up your head to the place where you're going. We lift our heads to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. So go be a lifter of somebody's head this week, amen. Love on your brothers, love on your family, man. Avoid strife and arguments this coming week in Jesus' name. God bless you.